Hello everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is the Bread of Life. This program is brought to you by Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more about our work around the world, go to cpeonline.org or traincpe.org. And to learn about our mission fellowship here in Boise, Idaho, go to breadoflifeboise.org. There you can find links to these messages and much more. Today we continue a consideration of repentance, and we begin by understanding that repentance is when we take up God's arguments against us. And His argument is that we're sinners, that our sins are as serious as His everlasting judgment, and that our own righteousness is like filthy rags, incapable of removing from us that very judgment. And today we consider that our failure to yield to Jesus as Lord is an ongoing expression of our rebellion against him. It is, this is what we said it was. This is really what we got down to. We said that repentance is the change of mind in which we take up God's position against our own selves and our sin. It's the change of mind in the repentant person where that person stands with God against himself. That's how radical a change of mind it is. I told you we were going to talk about four things that have to change. Four places where we stand with God against ourselves. And last week we only got through three. But the first thing we stand against is this. God stands against us and says we're sinners. We're not righteous men. We're not good men. We're not good people who do bad things. We're sinners. And we say... We agree. Yes, we agree. We say, like David, surely I was conceived and brought forth in iniquity. It is in my nature. It's my makeup. I'm a sinner. That's what I am. I'm not a person who came in with a blank slate and kind of made some mistakes. I'm not a person who came in with a shining stellar and someone messed me up the environment. No, I came in bent and crooked and descending. I came into this world dying. I'm a sinner with a sinful nature. That's what God says, and we agree with Him when we make that argument. Now, that's a difficult argument to make, but I found that most individuals really are willing to concede that. The arguments that we make get more and more difficult to make as we progress through these different arguments. The second argument that we make is that our sin is serious. Most individuals will say, I'm a sinner, but I'm just not a bad sinner. At least I'm not as bad as that person there, or that person. I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I sin, but they're not serious sins. I've done wrong, but I haven't done really, really wrong. And I did it once, but I haven't done it twice. I've done it twice, but I didn't mean to the first, whatever it is. You know, they, they mitigate their sins. No. We come up against ourselves, and we see that our sins are not a trifle. They're not a small matter, and that they bring us under God's just wrath and condemnation. And so we take up our argument with God and we point at any of our sins and we say that these sins make us eligible for God's divine everlasting judgment. This sin does. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. And so we find ourselves in the position of the publican that we read about last week who standing in the temple couldn't lift his head to look up but beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Except in the Greek, it reads, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, my sins. And we prayed only for mercy. 
Well, that's a little more radical than just saying that I'm a sinner. It's saying that any of my sins and all of my sins are serious. But the next argument that we have to take up against ourselves is this. We have to argue that there is nothing that we can do. There's no good work. There's no righteous act. There's no religious formula that we can perform that would wash us and cleanse us of our sins. That the answer for our sins is not in ourselves and not in our activity, but that the answer for our sins is completely and utterly and totally in God's provision for us through Jesus Christ alone. There's no good work that we can perform. Nothing that somehow will take away the accusation of God against us. Now, that's hard for individuals to do because most individuals have a sense of their sin. They have a sense of their lack of righteousness and they work hard to make up for it in different ways. They develop different patterns of behavior that they carry on for the rest of their lives and they even think to themselves, as long as I do this, as long as I think positive thoughts, as long as I say a nice word, as long as I let somebody cut in front of me on the way to work, whatever it is, as long as I do something, then I'm okay and it's going to be all right. As long as I conjure up my mind pleasant thoughts or I remind myself that God is actually a God who puts up with me regardless and everything's good, whatever it is, they devise their different strategies. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says that Jesus Christ has saved us not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. Completely undeserved. Through the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit that was poured out generously in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all through Him. Romans 3.20 says, By the deeds of the law, by the keeping of the law, shall no flesh be justified in His sight. Nothing. Now, this is even more radical because it's hard for us who have been ingrained in performance and measuring up to give the performance up to give up the belief that being a part of a certain community, saying certain things, even somehow just making sure that we intellectually believe certain things, I mean only profess them within our minds and are able to state them or offer up a certain prayer or do a certain good deed or find ourselves in the right place or light a candle, that will be the thing that will bring to me righteousness. And it's hard to give that up. Or just believing in myself. There's something in me that can ultimately overcome this. No, nothing. No, the person who repents agrees with God's argument given through Isaiah in Isaiah 64, 6, where it says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Now, that's a radical change of mind. Think of a man living in Jerusalem during the time of Christ. And this is a man who has gone to the temple on a regular basis. In fact, he starts his morning at the temple and he ends his evening at the temple because he wants to be at the temple when the first sacrifice is made and he wants to return to the temple when the last sacrifice is made. Those sacrifices that are offered up are lambs that the priests offer up on the altar in the temple. They have chose lambs that are in good, clean, perfect physical condition the night before to be offered in the morning and the following evening. He gathers into the courtyard of the temple in front of these great gates that open up to take you into the inner court where the altar is, where the sacrifices are made. And he stands there waiting for the gate to open up and for the sacrifice made as the sun rises up over Jerusalem. Three blasts of the ram's horn will sound when the gates opened up. And as the gates opened up, there before his eyes will be the first lamb that's to be sacrificed tied to the corner of the altar. And as the gates opened up, the first thing he will see is a priest take a knife and slit the throat of that lamb 
And another priest catched the blood of that lamb into a bowl that doesn't have a bottom on it, so he can never set it down. He's got to hold it. It's constantly being stirred. And he takes some of that blood, and he scatters it on the corners, each corner of the altar. And he takes the remainder of the blood that's being caught various priests, and they pour it out upon the steps that go down from the altar. And that blood will flow down and actually mingle with the brook Kindred and take it out of the city of Jerusalem. That brook is flowing red all the time, at least during the day. All day long, it's red, flowing red. Now, on this occasion, he's not only come to see this morning's sacrifice, and he'll not only come back to see the evening sacrifice, but on this occasion, he is particularly pleased because of a blessing that God has put upon his life, and he wants to express his thanksgiving, and he wants to offer an expression of worship. And so he's brought a lamb with him to sacrifice as a burnt offering, wholly given up to God, The morning sacrifice is a public sacrifice for the people. The evening sacrifice is a public sacrifice. During the various festivals, there are public sacrifices that are made, but this is a private sacrifice that he wants to make. And he's brought it in the night before so the priest could look at the lamb to make sure that that lamb was perfect and had no blemishes on it. Very shortly, he's going to go in and he will actually take the knife himself and sacrifice it as the priest gathered the blood and offered it up. He's done this before because on other occasions he had to come to offer sin offerings because he got angry at his wife, lost his temper, and he was abusive to her. And He had to offer up a sin offering. Not only that, he wanted to have a peace offering because he needed to be in good relationship with her. And the only way to express peace between his wife again was to come up and make a sacrifice. So he's done that plenty of times. Then there have been some occasions when he's had to deal with family members who have died and he's been rendered unclean. And so he's had to come and make sacrifices for that reason as well. And There are times when he's had to deal with guilt that's been in his life and he's made sacrifices on those occasions when he wants to worship, when he wants to fellowship with God, when he wants to fellowship with somebody else, when he wants to deal with guilt that he has before a person, when he deals with guilt he has before God. On all these occasions, think about it. When I make my wife angry at me, I just say, honey, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And we're done. He has to say, honey, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Let's get a lamb. Let's go to the temple. Now, he's not the only one there with a lamb. Oh, there are people with lambs. There's a person who's wealthy who's got an oxen. There are individuals who are poor, and they've got doves and pigeons in their hands. All day long, the priests who begin out in these white garments, but end by the end of the day, garments coated in red. All day long, blood is poured out upon that altar, and the sacrifices are then offered up on that altar and consumed before God, saying, God will receive this, God will receive this. Now, when these first began as sacrifices, the lesson was that a a sacrifice had to be made for our sins, that you need to bring this sacrifice. I forgot to tell you that when he came and when he made that sacrifice, the commandment was that he would lay his hand in upon that sacrifice as it was being sacrificed. And the word in the Hebrew was that he was to press in hard that that sacrifice was suffering in his place. That was the lesson of these sacrifices. Something has to be given in the place of what's required of you. Death, blood, suffering, punishment, in place of what's required of you. You're a sinner. Your sins are serious. There's nothing that you can do but offer up the sacrifice. Now, the fact that this happened over and over and over and over and over again told them that these sacrifices weren't sufficient. The Lord Jesus came. John the Baptist saw him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The author of Hebrews tells us that he was offered up once for all. 
He brought to an end this endless cycle of sacrifices. Now, these sacrifices were symbolic. They were also typical. They symbolized God's mercy. They symbolized God's forgiveness. They symbolized reconciliation with God. They symbolized God's acceptance of people through sacrifice. They were typical as well because they looked forward to something that would fulfill them and answer them completely, which was Jesus Christ. He was the one who answered all the types. He gave himself completely for the people to fulfill everything the people hoped for. But for hundreds of years in the temple, they've been doing this. So much so that now they no longer see it as simply a symbol. No longer do they see it as typical of a fulfillment yet to come, but they see this thing in itself as their righteousness. This is what makes me right before God. I bring a sacrifice. This is what covers my sin. That lamb. You can't say that I'm guilty before God. I gave a lamb. You can't say I don't have reconciliation with God. I offered up a dove. So they believe in the thing itself. That the thing itself brings merit before God. And, of course, they follow all the different laws as well to be righteous people, believing that if they follow all those laws, that brings merit before God as well. The Lord Jesus comes. He offers up Himself. But they don't look to Him or trust in Him and rely upon the grace of His sacrifice alone for their sins. They keep going back to the temple and making their offerings. They keep trying to follow all the rules and laws of Israel. And you know what that makes those laws? You know what makes those works that they're doing? makes them dead works. They're dead. They're meaningless. They're purposeless because Christ is not in them. You see this? They have to repent of their dead works. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. First, go to traincpe.org traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.